Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com. Chapter 8. My case came to trial after three long months on remand. The evidence against me was pretty much watertight, so I figured the best thing I could do was plead guilty. Try to be cooperative and hope the judge would go easy on me. A guilty plea meant no real trial and no jury. The arguments from prosecution and defence were over the severity of the sentence. Not a lot was required of me on the day. I felt a doomed numbness knowing that I was not a free man. All I said in the whole process was guilty and I'm sorry for what I've done. The Perth County Court looks like your classic courtroom. It's lined with dark timber panels, with the judge's bench elevated. Even in summer, the room seemed cold. The judge looked distant and disapproving, staring down at me dressed in legal robes and a wig perched on his head. If the whole setup is designed to intimidate young criminals like me, it worked a treat. I sat and shivered as the prosecution presented a list of my crimes and called for a steep sentence. I had a legal aid barrister who argued for leniency based on my drug dependence and mental health problems. The judge called for a pre-sentence report and ordered me to reappear in 28 days. While I was at the court waiting to be transported back to the remand centre, some Victorian detectives turned up to interview me about an incident that had occurred in Ballarat the previous year. They were trying to find those responsible for throwing Molotov cocktails into a police car. I knew about the incident but wasn't going to help the cops. The car had been torched as payback for a police car running down and killing a local drunk called Gene. Everyone in the area knew Gene, and just about everyone liked him. He was essentially a harmless, jovial kind of drunk who liked to make people laugh, and he had just become a father. Like many alcoholics, Gene had got himself into a bit of trouble now and then, but he was no criminal. Apparently the cops had seen him riding his motorbike, maybe he had refused to pull over. There was a crash between Gene on his bike and the cops. It seemed to everyone on the street that they had run him down in cold blood. Shortly after Jean had been killed, some of Jean's friends had thrown Molotov cocktails at the car of the police who were investigating the incident. The car was destroyed by the fire but no one was hurt. The detectives took me into an interview room and told me they knew I'd torched the car. They claimed they had witnesses. I wasn't there, I insisted. People are trying to blame me because they think I've disappeared. It's easy to put the whole thing on someone who's not around. Since I'm not there to give my side of the story, who else are they going to blame? I demanded. They tried to pressure me into a confession, but I knew they were bluffing. I repeated my claim that I wasn't there. I think they knew I knew they were bluffing. Without hard evidence, they gave up and left me to my captors who marched me back to the prisoner holding area. I think they knew I knew they were bluffing. Without hard evidence, they gave up and left me to my captors who marched me back to the prisoner holding area. It was a low security area where I was waiting with other prisoners who weren't considered dangerous. Back in the holding cell, I felt angry. Angry because I believed the cops had killed my friend and they weren't getting into trouble. Angry that they were trying to pin the job on me. Plus, I thought they'd brought it on themselves by killing a harmless drunk. I continued to mull over the injustice of it all, becoming angrier and angrier. The anger became like a ball of energy building inside me. When I get angry, my muscles twitch and my breathing quickens. Eventually on that day, it all boiled over. In a rage, I leapt up and ripped a plank from the top of the wooden bench along the edge of the cell. The other prisoners backed away, hoping I wouldn't swing it. It was like something came over me that was beyond my control. Anger was roaring within me. Three cops burst in, saw me with the lump of timber and pounced on me. 
They tore the plank from my hands and slammed me to the floor. The cops waited for me to relax a little and let me up, still holding my arms. They marched me off to the maximum security area where each prisoner was kept in a small cubicle-sized cell, cold and unfurnished. I was immediately charged with willful damage and taken back into the court and summarily convicted. The judge peered at me sternly. Seven days imprisonment. Hopefully that will provide time for you to consider controlling your temper, young man. Seven days imprisonment meant seven days at Fremantle Jail in the general prison population. Compared to the comfort and relative freedom of Canningvale, Fremantle Prison was hell. I was assigned a tiny cell with another prisoner. There was no toilet in the cell, just a tin bucket, covered with a tin lid. I was assigned to number two exercise yard, which was predominantly populated with Aborigines. As one of the few white fellas, I was scared and kept to myself, backed against a wall or fence, always in easy view of the guard towers. A white guy could get beaten half to death by the black fellas, who were often bitter about the injustice they suffered. The seven days dragged by, but without incident, and I was moved back to Canningvale. Before the sentencing hearing, it seemed I was tested and examined by someone new every day. There were interviews with psychiatrists, psychologists and social workers. Their opinions about my sanity, guilt and prospects for rehabilitation were compiled into a thick report that was forwarded to the judge. A few weeks later, I was back in the same timber-panelled courtroom, looking up at the same grim judge. Neither the prosecution nor the defence had any submission to make. The judge pondered the report for a few moments. I sat there feeling my heart race with the anxiety of not knowing my future, this stern stranger was about to decide my future. I had lost control of my life. The judge closed the report, placed it on the bench in front of him, adjusted his spectacles and directed me to stand. In a weary voice of one who had read a thousand reports, just like mine, of a thousand crims, just like me, he sentenced me to six years imprisonment for burglary, setting a minimum term of three years. I would no longer be with Rick, who was now on his own journey in prison. Donna had a little baby girl, but it was difficult to maintain any of these relationships in prison. The bailiff took my arm and escorted me out. Within a couple of hours, I arrived back at Fremantle Jail. At least now, I knew what to expect on arrival. After the customary processing, I was marched through the clanking steel doors to the main division. The guard stopped outside the cell, checked the document on the clipboard he carried and swung open the unlocked door. Here's your new roommate, Smitty. The guard motioned for me to step inside the cell, glanced at his watch and disappeared. When I met Smitty, he was reclining on his bunk flicking through a magazine. He glanced up and grinned. G'day mate. G'day, how's it going? I answered, unsure about this roommate I was given. Alright, what's your name? Dave Harris. But they call me Harry. You? Adian Smitty. Adian got up from his bunk and extended his hand. Welcome to Her Majesty's Finest. Adian adopted an aristocratic tone and made a sweeping gesture. I trust all is in order? He jerked his thumb over his shoulder. Top bunk's yours. Adian came from Tully in Queensland and was a small-time dope grower and dealer. He would visit the West from time to time to sell his crop. He was well known to the cops and would sometimes get caught. He served a series of short sentences for possession. Amiable and intelligent, Adian knew everyone in the prison and knew the ropes of prison life. Frio is one of the oldest jails in the country, and the conditions seemed pretty much unchanged from the 19th century. Two prisoners shared each of the cramped cells, secured with a low, heavy door containing a tiny, barred window. 
The clank of steel doors reverberated off the thick stone walls. There were no amenities in the cell, just a couple of bunks. It always felt damp. Adian's wife would visit every couple of weeks to bring him drugs. In prison, drugs and cigarettes work like a type of currency. The more you have, the more power you have. Most of the guys in prison are drug users, and a good number of them are there for drug-related offences. Many of us just wanted drugs to escape the pain and monotony of prison life. Just about everyone wants drugs in prison, either to use or trade, and where drugs are short in supply, some people are willing to kill for them. Dad was living in Perth and would visit from time to time. The conversations were mostly about his work and family, with scraps of news about my sister. Like most Aussie men, we weren't used to making small talk, much less about our feelings or fears. Still, it was good to know he cared enough to drop by, and I appreciated that he put $20 a week into my account so I could buy a handful of things from the prison store. Because Adian had a regular delivery of drugs, he was very influential among the prisoners. He could use drugs to buy favours, like protection from those who might want to acquire his whole stash by force. It came as a surprise when, a few weeks after my arrival at Frio, I was told I had a visitor. When I turned up at the visitation area, there was a mate's girlfriend, Dee, who had visited me while I was in remand. My mate Gary had been sent to Frio a few weeks before me, but had been shipped off to another prison the previous day. Since she couldn't see Gary, she asked to see me. It was so nice to have someone visit me. I felt a strange and warm connection to her. Dee was warm and approachable. I was glad Gary was not around. The visiting room was a big space with straight back chairs all round the wall. I walked into the room very pleased to see her. I gave her a hug and she sat down next to me. She took my hand and in the process slipped me a small bag. She leaned over to kiss my cheek, whispering that the bag contained dope. Without replying, I nodded slightly and dropped my hand between us. We talked about trivial things for a few minutes and then I pretended to tuck my shirt stuffing the bag of dope down my pants in the process. We talked some more to prevent the guards suspecting that this was drug delivery, and she left. Back in my cell, I carefully opened the bag and shared some of the contents with Adian. Adian would pass little parcels on to his friends. In prison, drug supply is shared with friends, who'll share theirs when they get some. This keeps a network of friendships strong and prevents prisoners from becoming isolated. In the brutality of prison life, it pays to have friends. I made a little bong out of a shampoo bottle, a pen and a bit of foil and over the next few days I burnt through most of the dope that they had slipped me. There's a popular belief that drugs like marijuana make you more spiritually aware, opening your mind to the influence of the spiritual world. I had found that the voices in my head had gradually tapered off during the acute episode in remand. I think this was essentially because I wasn't using drugs. Now that I was using again, the voices returned with vengeance. After a couple of days of heavy use, the voices filled my head and I was convinced that demons were trying to kill me. Once I flipped out, creating a huge commotion in my cell until the screws came and dragged me away to an observation cell. The observation cell was a part of the new division, separate from the ancient stone cells of main division. The next morning I was strip searched and the guard discovered a matchbox containing what was left of my supply of dope. Since I already had a history of drug-related mental health issues, it was decided I would stay in New Division. New Div was kind of like the environment in the movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All the inmates were there because they had some kind of psychiatric issue. This was a new crowd where I had no friends and no connections. I tried to keep my head down and figure out who was who. 
Dominating the culture of New Div was a bear of a bloke called Steve. He stood well over six foot tall and was solidly built. He fancied himself as a bit of a standover man, intimidating other inmates with his size and aggressive manner. Steve would take things from anyone he liked, especially smokes. In the absence of drugs, smokes are another de facto currency in prison. Even for those who don't smoke, they're useful for buying favours. Steve liked to push people around and force them to do whatever he commanded, just to flex his muscles. Anyone who resisted, he'd rough up. I'd watched him in action, how he moved and conducted himself. I decided he thought that he was a lot better than he really was. A couple of the other inmates warned that Steve was planning to have a go at me, since I was new and not yet under his thumb. I decided to take the initiative and confront him. My opportunity came one afternoon in the exercise yard. Steve was sitting on a bench, slouching back and looking over his dominion with a look of smug satisfaction. I strode up to him, intent on picking a fight. Other bullies I'd met would leave me alone if I could beat them once, and it was better if the fight began on my terms. I hear you think you're pretty good. Think you're on this joint? I scoffed at him. He looked me up and down for a second, said nothing, and then suddenly lunged at me from the bench. I was expecting some kind of full frontal move, and I dodged to the side. He lurched past, swung around and shaped up the fight. As he came in swinging, I ducked the worst of his blows and drove my first into his abdomen, following with the blow to the cheek. That only served to make him mad, and he came at me again in a flurry of punches. While I was quicker than he, I didn't have enough weight to put behind a punch to knock him cold, while a blow from him could probably take my head off. In the following exchange, he caught me with a couple of glancing punches. I worked out I needed to fight this guy some other way. Remembering my martial arts training, I ducked under his next attack, caught his left arm and jerked it upward and backward, using the momentum of his body to wrench his shoulder. As he turned and stumbled, I forced the arm up and he fell heavily. In a second, I was on top of him. Meanwhile, a crowd formed around us, yelling encouragement. Someone shoved a cricket bat into my hand. I laid into his head with the bat a couple of times, then stood up to gain some more swinging space. By now, Steve was covering his head with his arms. I lifted the bat over my head and dealt him a decisive blow. As I swung, the bat slipped from my grasp. I spun around to see it in the hands of a weedy little guy with a long, unkempt beard and a wild look in his eyes. I'd heard about this guy. Rumour had it that he was in for murder, pulling a 44 pistol in a supermarket and blowing a woman's head off. He was a nervous, suspicious sort of bloke with darting eyes and quick, bird-like movements. He never said much to anyone. Now the little guy with the bat was tearing into the big man with a frenzy of blows to the head. By the time the screws arrived, I had melted back into the crowd and Steve was a bloody, unconscious mess. The screws forced the little weedy guy to the ground and pinned him there. Steve was taken to the hospital with a fractured skull. I had found my place in New Div and Steve did not dominate the place again after that. No one really bothered anyone. I could just get on with doing my time as best I could. Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com.